goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i den her uge talt med Daniel Allen, som er professor ved Harvard University, som leder sit eget Democracy Lab og som er forfatter til nogle af de mest inspirerende, lejende, nysgerrige og alligevel alvorlige bøger om demokrati, samfund, økonomisk retfærdighed, opbrudet som sammenbrud, opbrudet som muligheder i det 21. århundrede. Hun er en af de tænkere, som vi er rigtig, rigtig glade for at kunne præsentere her i langsomme samtaler. Jeg har talt med hende før, men nu taler vi med hende igen. Og det gør vi, fordi hun har udgivet en bog, der hedder Justice by Means of Democracy, der står til at blive hendes store teoretiske Hovedværk. Det er et forsøg på at redde den amerikanske liberalisme på en måde, som tager alle socialismens indvendinger alvorligt. Det er et forsøg på at redde liberalismen, som siger, at den rene liberalisme taber til ulighed. Den taber til, at den materielle base bliver udhulet, hvis man ikke fra starten siger, at præmissen for liberalisme det er, at magten bliver delt. Så hun kalder det for en power-sharing liberalism. Det er, at økonomien bliver demokratiseret. Det er, at man udvider adgangene til indflydelse for borgerne i samfundet. Så på den ene side, så tager hun demokratiets krise så alvorligt, så hun er alarmeret. På den anden side, så ser hun åbninger alle vegne, hvor hun kan investere alt fra sin Sokrates-studier til sin tænkning, til sine egne erfaringer som guvernørkandidat i Massachusetts, i at gentænke det hele på en måde, som er appellerende, inspirerende og spændende og giver en lyst til at deltage i det amerikanske demokrati. Hun har et fantastisk interessant forfatterskab, fordi det spænder over så vidt forskellige bøger. Hun har skrevet Art Declaration, A Reading of the Declaration of Independence in Defense of Equality, som er en filosofisk læsning af den amerikanske uafhængighedserklæring hvor hun redegør for, hvorfor det altid var lighed, der var målet for det nye amerikanske samfund. Og frihed var altid lighed i frihed, frihed for alle. Og hun ser meget af det, der er sket i det amerikanske samfund siden, som forsømmelse af forståelse af samtænkningen af frihed og lighed. Frihed er kun frihed, hvis det er frihed for alle, understreger Daniel Allen. Men hun har også skrevet en helt anden bog, som hedder Cause the Life and Times of Michael A., som er en fortælling om hendes egen fætter, den sorte Michael A., der blev født og vokset op i Kalifornien, ligesom Daniel Allen selv, men kom på den forkerte side af samfundet, og som selvfølgelig har ansvaret for noget af det ballade, han rydde sig ud i, men som også blev ramt af en masse ting, som han ikke selv var skyldig, kom i fængsel ud igen, prøvede at etablere et liv, kom i fængsel igen, og endte med at blive skudt som en relativ ung mand. Her tager Daniel Allen, den ansete professor fra Harvard, hun tager over og researcher hele sin fætters liv, taler med hans nære venner, hans medfanger i fængslet, og genfortæller hele hans livshistorie som fortælling om det amerikanske retsvæsen nedefra. Hun har skrevet Democracy in the Time of Coronavirus. Hun har skrevet en bog, som jeg selv har brugt rigtig meget, som hedder Talking to Strangers, som handler om, at Folkestyrets fundament, det er, at vi kan tale med fremmede mennesker. Og hun anbefaler, at hver gang man står ved et busstoppested, står i en kø, sidder på en restaurant ved siden af nogen, er et eller andet sted i det offentlige rum ved siden af fremmede, at man så rækker ud efter dem og indleder samtaler med dem. Jeg har faktisk forsøgt at leve efter Talking to Strangers, ikke altid til min families store fornøjelse, men det har været et berigende eksperiment at følge og forsøge at realisere Daniel Allens filosofi. Og her følger således vores seneste samtale, hvis udgangspunkt er hendes nye bog, Justice by Means of Democracy. 
Uh, you know, I really I, I enjoy the spirit of your work because in these years there are so many people writing about defending democracy against Trump and really and and progressives are intellectually becoming conservative to the extent that they're paralyzed by the threats from the right wing from fake news and from populism. And of course, these threats are real, and I'm I'm worried about them too. But still, democracy was always imperfect. And I feel we get nowhere if we just defend the institution. And when I read your work, I'm reminded that we also live in a nature of democratic experimentation and, and renewal. Is this how you see this moment? Yes, that you've got it exactly right. I had a, a funny experience recently. I gave a talk in Scranton, Pennsylvania. That's one of those towns hard hit by globalization. That's President Biden's birthplace. And you know it right when you get there because you drive into town on a road that is now called President Biden Expressway. <laughs> and um, I was giving a talk about democracy questions. I mentioned how in 2015 and 16, I had written so many columns in the Washington Post against the election of Trump. And so that led somebody in the audience then to ask me, Danielle, since you were so concerned in 2016, how would you compare your level of concern now, uh, 2024, to what you felt in 2016? It was a great question. It really stopped me in my tracks because I had never really asked myself the question that way. And my answer surprised me. After I thought about it, I realized I was actually, I'm less concerned now than I was in 2016. And it's for exactly the reason you just mentioned, because there is so much democratic experimentation going on in the grassroots in America. And none of it was happening back in 2016. So there are civil society organizations working on new forms of voting, working on building bridges across lines of difference, working on figuring out how to rebuild or sort of fill local news deserts, rebuild local journalism and make sure people are informed enough that they can participate and hold officials to account and things like that. So all over America, this is happening. And so I am clear that as a people, we are healthier now than we were in 2016. So I'm not going to say I'm confident about the election outcome, but from the point of view of whether we have the resilience to take democracy forward, you know, come what may, I feel much better about that than I did in 2016. Hmm, that's interesting. Uh, you know, for us here at Information, you know, we grew out of the resistance movement and we are hopelessly romantic about movements. Every yeah. time there's, <laughs> there's a movement, we're like, oh, we love this movement. Uh, and then we realize sometimes, well, some of the words that we use to describe the progressive movement, actually, they fit to the Trump movement as well, if you take mm -hmm. a step back. So we're, we're romantic and a little scared as well. But mm -hmm. I think one of the most promising things for us over the last couple of decades have been the progressive movements in the U.S., all the way from the Occupy Wall Street movement that mobilized a lot of people who became part of the Bernie Sanders campaign and the intellectual movement, the new Brandeis movement led by Lena Khan, Tim Wu and Jonathan Cantor, that became very influential. Black Lives Matter, of course, the Me Too movement and the Sunrise movement, because I think all of these movements actually made an impact. And we saw people who could give up, who could have said, well, democracy is not for us. They insisted that they had a chance. They insisted on the history of democracy. So we've been very, very hopeful about these movements. I'm curious, how do you, as as, uh, as someone who really studies democracy, see the strengths and weaknesses of this culture of progressive movements in, in America today? I really appreciate that question. I especially appreciate it because I'm you know, part of a growing community of people who are trying to 
generate a democracy renovation movement. So we share your sort of romantic appreciation of movements. Um, I think I will say that for those progressive movements that you've mentioned, they have absolutely changed the horizon of understanding for the American people. The Occupy Wall Street movement brought people's attention to the problem of wealth and income inequality. Uh, you know, Sunrise Movement absolutely has changed the conversation about climate and ditto Black Lives Matter. So what those movements have all succeeded at, I think, is really putting important moral questions on the table. They have focused less on the nuts and bolts of governance. Mm -hmm. And so that is where I would um, introduce some critique. Um, at the end of the day, in a democracy, you do have to drive change through institutions where the results that come at the end sort of never line up with exactly what any particular player wants up front because you have negotiation, because you have compromise, because you have accommodations. You do actually need all of these things for decisions and outcomes that will have stability um, over time in a democratic populace. So I think what I'm really trying to do is call people's attention back to the basic work of governance. And then the sort of inflection I'm putting on it is, it's not you know your grandfather's governance. Our governance structures do need to be renovated. Our societies are so much more complex. They're so much more diverse. Technology has impacted them so profoundly that if governance is going to work for us as we need it to, we actually have to renovate how it works. Um, but we can't ignore that work um, and, and simply move the moral horizons. Uh, we have to actually revisit governance too. I, I've been thinking lately, looking at the war in, in, in Ukraine and what's going on in Israel, whether it is a weakness of the progressive movements today that they're so moralistic, that they're all based on very strong moral causes, and you mobilize on, we're absolutely right, and the others are absolutely wrong. Of course, it can be very strong when it comes to racism and when it comes to climate change. But when you have more difficult issues, like for us, it's very, very delicate, how because we, we will be losing the war against Russia if we don't change the strategy here. We need to find a way out. And all these difficult questions, they seem very hard to deal with for these progressive movements because they're so much based on moral issues. Do you see this dilemma in them? I do see this dilemma. And this is you know, it's really interesting. Again, I'll, let me come back to this democracy renovation work that I'm doing in the democracy renovation movement we're trying to build. One of the things we say a lot is that we have to build a cross-ideological supermajority for hmm. democracy. Okay, so two-thirds or three-quarters of the people who are willing to commit to constitutionalism, to rule of law, to universal inclusion, to nonviolence. And there is a bright line. I mean, there are people who have been radicalized who are on, their, on the other side of that bright line. So this picture of a cross-ideological supermajority for democracy, it's not a kind of romantic, we're all going to be friends, kumbaya picture. Um, it's recognizing that, that there are some people who have been radicalized. They are on the other side of a bright line. Nonetheless, if you're going to have a stable democracy, at the end of the day, it does have to be upheld by a supermajority, not a bare 50% plus one majority. So that's a real change um, of mental model from where the progressive movements have been, right? Progressive activism has really drawn from the well of the lesson that the job is to polarize the issue, polarize and make people choose sides, polarize and make people choose sides. I think that is actually detrimental, that strategy uh, to the long-term health of democracy. 
So we are trying to uh, shift that um, and again, redirect people towards this pursuit of a cross ideological supermajority for democracy. And I think I find a little bit of that thinking near the end of uh, your book, Justin, by means of, of democracy as well. But I want to I want to turn to the, to that book, but because equality is a very central theme in in your work, and I'm very glad that it's a very central theme because over the last couple of decades, I've been wondering what actually happened to equality. You know, people say equality is important, but it's like equality is the boring part of the you know the tri three concept of the French revolutions, and you don't really see people here the defending it. They say, well, inequality is bad, but freedom is, is more important. And in your wonderful book, Our Declaration, you write that equality is the foundation of freedom, because from a commitment to equality emerges the people itself. I think that's such a beautiful mm -hmm. sentence. Why isn't equality, in your view, the foundation of freedom? Thank you so much for that. Um, so, well, freedom has two parts. There is the freedom we hope to have over our own lives, autonomy in a sense of just steering our own direction. But of course, we all live in society. Our societies are governed by rules and constraints. So the full articulation of human autonomy requires that we also be a co-author of those rules and constraints. The only way to do that is through participation in politics. That depends on equality, that we all be equal um, as citizens in the chance to shape those rules and constraints. So that's the sense in which equality is the foundation for freedom. We literally cannot have the fullest measure of human freedom without having that political equality um, as an anchor for it. Is that, I think in your book, it also appears that we've had on the left a too narrow understanding of equality. As when we talk about equality here in this newspaper, we would almost presuppose that it's economic equality. And, 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 and you write about the focus on taxation and redistribution on the left, which we definitely share here, that it's uh, incessant. Is that because we have too narrow an understanding of equality? So I do make that case. I mean, so it is true that I am shifting the focus to political equality. Economic egalitarianism also matters for me. So I would concur with the view that you need a kind of economic egalitarianism as the material basis for political empowerment. But um, at the end of the day, um, I am putting political equality sort of first in the sort of picture of what do you need um, for human flourishing. And this is really, really important because um, at the end of the day, we do have a habit across policymaking spaces in you know, Europe and the US um, to tell people what's best for them. Um, to develop policy in a way where we think the material outcomes will be best for people, but that are just, at the end of the day, quite paternalistic. And what I am trying to point out is that that does actually affect well-being. It affects people's quality of life. It does undermine freedom. Freedom is a positive human good. So the challenge, I think, is to sort of slightly just reverse the order. If we focus on people's empowerment, if we focus on their full freedom, including their equal status as citizens, Uh, then yes, we need an economic policy that supports the material basis of empowerment. Even as we craft that policy, though, we need to be doing it on the basis of participatory democratic um, methods and forms of governance. Would you use equality as a slogan here, or is it more efficient as a kind of analytical concept? Is that something when you when you analyze, well, you say, well equality was very important to the founders. It's very important in the Declaration. It's the foundation of freedom, but it's not something that mobilizes. 
It's true. But so, um, you know, I, what I do is I use freedom and equality as a pair, um, as a slogan. I mean, I don't use them on, say, a banner, um, but I do often use them in speaking. So, for example, I will say to people, you know, I, in terms, I tell my own story of how I've come to understand the force and power of democracy. And to some extent, it's a it's a matter of family inheritance. I may have shared this with you the last time we spoke. Um, I have a, a granddad who helped found one of the first NAACP chapters for civil rights um, in Northern Florida in the 40s. And I have great grandparents who helped fight for women's right to vote. So I grew up in this family of super civically engaged people. And as a kid, I really took democracy's value for granted. But then it all got a lot more complicated for me as I was watching my own generation come up in the world. In my parents' generation, everybody pretty much moved up economically. So that same granddad was a fisherman, and then his kids were small business owners and professors. On the other side, it was you know factory workers and then accountants. But my generation has lived through something quite different. So here I am, you know, a professor with tenure at an elite university. It's an incredibly privileged role. I've got a brother who's a corporate executive. And then I have cousins who are not with us any longer because of substance use disorder, incarceration, homicide. So people I used to run around in the streets playing football with. So I call this the great pulling apart. You know, here I sit, you know, in this privileged position at the pinnacle, so to speak, and then other family members are trapped in really dark and difficult circumstances. And that's pretty much what our whole country has lived through over the last 50 years. Right. So my 50 plus years perfectly coincide with the graphs showing the rise of income inequality, the rise of wealth inequality, the rise of polarization and so forth. And I lost my youngest cousin in 2009. That was a real life turning point moment for me where I was like, you know, wait a second. Democracy is not supposed to be abstractly valuable. Right. It's like, yes, we love the ideals of freedom and equality. But the point is that when we embrace them, it delivers a society that makes it possible for every generation to do a bit better than the previous and for a whole generational cohort to move forward together. So that's how I talk about it. I take freedom and equality as these ideals that we embrace in order to give us the engine of a society that delivers that empowerment, that delivers that thriving, that delivers that well-being for whole generations um, all together. So that I just, I'm sharing that to give you a sense of how I make freedom and equality a slogan. They're a slogan sort of inside a story that's a story about human well-being yeah that's a, I, I've read not only did I read your book on, on your cousin my daughter who's 21 actually read it as well that's the oh that's gosh one of, one of your books that that she read and she was so impressed that someone who was a professor at Harvard and a classicist first could write a book like that that was so different how was it for you to write a book that was so different well, you know, it was an interesting experience. Um, I mean, so just for your listeners, this is a book about my cousin, Michael, who went to prison at the young age of 15 on a first arrest in Southern California for an attempted carjacking. It was a terrible thing for him to have done, but it was also a point in California where punishment was at its most severe. So he received a sentence of 12 years and eight months for that first arrest, and he served most of it. And then he had about two years out when he was uh, shot and killed by somebody he'd met while he was in prison. So that's what the book is about. And it's true, it's very different from what professors usually write about. Um, you know, it came about because I was being asked to give lectures um, on the state of Black America. And I kept giving people these very abstract titles for what I was going to write about. And I kept canceling the lectures. 
And finally, I realized that the reason I was doing this was because I didn't really feel like I could answer the question until I had come to an understanding of what had happened to my cousin, Michael. So I actually wrote the book as a set of lectures <laughs> to give at Harvard, in fact, and then, you know, found myself weeping through the entirety of every lecture for four lectures. So yes, it was a strange experience. And it did change your conception of, of democracy, actually. It did. It absolutely did. Um, because I started at that point uh, really trying to change the dynamics um, so that we were not delivering this incredible pulling apart of experience and these traps for so many. And I started working first on criminal justice reform sort of in the years from 2009 to 2012. But that taught me that even where we had common sense, even cross-partisan solutions to things, we could not get them through, especially our federal government because of governance dysfunction. And so that's what really led me into the work of democracy renovation. And, you know, this kind of clarity that, you know, you, you have to have that functioning democratic structure in order to deliver some of the basics of justice. And sometimes people think, oh, well, can't we just have a sort of technocratic government or do we really need participation in order to deliver that picture of justice? But it's very clear to me that if you put hands in the power of only a few, you will always get results that distort and cannot provide the well-being for all. So you have to have forms of governance that do deliver real power sh sharing. It's the only way um, there's possibly a chance, I believe, of actually delivering on the demands of justice. Speaking of power sharing, many would look at the last uh, half century and say, well, this shows us the failure of, of liberalism. It's more than half a century since John Rawls' the Theories of Justice came out. And it was incredibly influential, at least academically and intellectually here as, as well. Many would look back and say, well, the last half century showed us that liberalism is very good for those with privilege, but it doesn't have the capacity of delivering real collective action. And it's <clears throat> too abstract and, and too intellectually thin. Uh, it leaves the political language of emotions to the other part. So you be stuck with the technocrats in, in Europe and, and the academic elite, and you'll have populism uh, against you. So people are very, I, I would say there's a liberalism fatigue here, even among intellectuals. But you do, you do uh, save liberalism or reform liberalism uh, in a very interesting way, justice by means of of democracy with the concept of power sharing liberalism. Could you explain that? Sure. No, I mean, um, I think I think you put your finger on it that um, the liberalism of John Rawls seemed to have incredible promise, such a commitment to a concept of justice. But when you sort of pull on some of the smaller threads um, in its argument, it does ultimately build in this structure um, of technocracy, the idea that uh, sort of day-to-day decision-making, it's reasonable to delegate to you know, sort of an elite few. And as long as they have the kind of, you know, interests of the least well-off at the sort of top of mind that you're going to get good results. Um, and so I think that has, you know, Rawls really did work its way into the water, for example, here at the Harvard Kennedy School, all kinds of other places that te teach policymaking. And it really did, I think, um, give people a sense that they could use their own kind of thought experiments as a way of knowing what was best for other people. And that just goes wrong. Uh, it just goes wrong. There's a limit to thought experiments. You actually need people who are sitting in the world in other positions, observing different things from you to tell you <laughs> what would make a difference from where they sit. And I've been struck by this. I think I do share in the book the story of um, a conversation with a colleague, an economist, the day after the Trump election, 
where we were on a panel together. And before it started, he observed to me that he and his colleagues had always known globalization would take, you know, 20, 30 years to work its way through the economic system. And that it was only watching the Trump election results that he'd, he'd realized that he had never stopped to think what 20 or 30 years of that transformation in the life of a person living through it, where it really hits, like what that actually feels like. So that's sort of the problem that I see as emergent from the philosophical structure um, of Rawlsian liberalism. But you do, because others here would say, well, that's why we need democratic socialism or, or some like I spoke to your colleague, Michael Sandel, in the beginning of the year, because of uh, the republication of, of his old communitarian work, and he would say, well, we need a values-based approach to solve the, the deficits of liberalism. But you do stick to liberalism as such. Why is that? Yeah. I mean, so I am a defender of the concept of rights. Um, so for me, and you know, in that regard, I'm not sure that liberalism and democratic socialism are that far off each no. other. Um, but for me, it's very important to say out loud that a defensive rights is fundamental. The other thing that does, you know, bring more space between my picture and democratic socialism is my view that markets are a positive force. They're not inevitably a positive force, but I do think that they do have a lot of positive potential. It does matter what the rules for markets are, of course. Um, they can be structured in ways that are extractive and exploitative. So you have to constrain markets um, in ways that support a healthy and empowering economy. Um, but what I'm trying to do in the political economy argument of the book is really say, look, we've got three tools um, for solving public goods problems. Um, and those are the market, the state, and civil society organizations. And we need different combinations of those tools for different public goods problems. So I think the political economy is a little harder to read because I don't just sort of, I don't have a single answer, a kind of cookie cutter where it's, you know, privatized all the time. That is not my answer, you know, nor is my answer public sector investment all the time. Um, nor is it, you know, Tocquevillian associations all the time will solve the problem. The point is rather that uh, each of those modes of human coordination and organization has distinctive values. Take what we all saw in COVID, for example, the pandemic and the production of vaccines. Um, I'll give you an example of how the three things kind of can come together. So it, it mattered that there had been public sector investment in research for decades in the science that was beneath those vaccines. If that public sector investment, when there wasn't profit to be had, if that hadn't been made, we would not have been in a position then to have the Moderna and Pfizer's of the world scale up the vaccine to global levels. By the same token, just the fact that those you know market, those commercial structures were there for scaling does not actually complete the job of say, call it in this case, last mile delivery in Massachusetts, for example, there's a lot of problems reaching people in rural areas, reaching people in African-American communities. And there, the solution was absolutely that civil society organizations who were trusted messengers formed networks of distribution to make sure that vaccines got to people who really needed them and who otherwise might not have been reached by the market. So it really did take you know, all three parts of um, that kind of economy of public goods production for this to work. And so the, the basic argument I'm trying to make is that for different problems, we need kind of different combinations of markets, state, and civil society. And the premise for the argument is the book is also that economic policies have been decoupled from democratic policies for, for decades. Yes. Uh, 
and, and that you want to put e economic policies back in the political arena or take it out of the hands of the technocrats. And when I was reading that, I was thinking, you know, some of what you're writing does seem to me to resemble some parts of Biden's economic uh, agenda. I know they have this extreme focus on industrial policies that they believe will deliver everything from green transition to reunionization to, to, to social justice. But I do think some of the ambitions in your book of saying, well, this is a political economy. It shouldn't be left to economists, should be left to politicians and democratic debate. How can you build a, an, an economy from the ground up? These are things that you're writing that this administration is trying to do. How do you see the difference and the similarity between your political economy and the ambitions of the Biden administration? No, I appreciate you're noticing that. I mean, I do think that there are synergies um, for sure. And I think that reflects that um, there has been a big network of conversation around political economy in the U.S. for the last decade, basically. And a number of people who have been part of that conversation um, are in the Biden administration. So in that regard, it's not really accidental that there are some resemblances there. I think it's important to note, though, that, you know, paradoxically, the Trump uh, you know, campaign, too, has various aspects like this. So the Trump campaign thinks that the Federal Reserve or other agencies are examples of unaccountable power, right? They're not constrained by democratic power. Their argument is that the executive should therefore have total control over them. Now, that's where I would part ways, right, from the Trumpist point of view. I am seeking to advocate for Congress, for the legislature, the uh, you know, genuine democratic authority source of legitimacy to reclaim its own power over those forms of currently relatively unaccountable um, state power. Another great part of the book, which is, I think it's connects with power sharing liberalism and the political economy of the book, is the concept difference without domination. Because I think this really strikes at one of the forces of liberalism that you actually allow people to flourish in an individual way and you feel that's a collective responsibility to enable that. And yet there's this continuous project of avoiding domination. Could you explain this principle of difference without domination? Sure. So the basic idea is that if you protect freedom, um, then human difference emerges, um, social patterns, groups, groups form, they form based on associational affinities, they form based on uh, preferences, you know, some people like to go to the ballet, other people like to go to the beach, and you get very different kinds of cultural groups emerging. So to protect freedom is to protect the emergence of difference. But of course, the span of human history makes very clear that it's very easy for uh, difference to come to articulate with domination, that once human beings sort of differ in some fashion that they can see or recognize about each other, then they also often seek to hoard opportunities for in-groups or otherwise you know, subject out-groups. So the question is, how do you sort of short-circuit that from happening? Let difference emerge, but not let it convert into domination. And so in terms of kind of practical matters from policy point of view, what this means is when we look around the world and see disparities, what we have to do first is analyze the sources of those disparities. They may or may not come from patterns and practices of domination. When they do, we need to interrupt those patterns and practices. When they don't, then they don't matter so much necessarily. So for example, I always, you know, I use the example of um, my co-editor for a volume called Difference Without Domination. Um, is a mathematician. I'm a lover of poetry. So we'd always used to joke that if if we lived in a country and there was an island of poetry lovers, an island of mathematicians, and then the country had a poetry contest, 
Um, well, it would make sense that the people from the poetry land would be overrepresented among the winners um, compared to people from the math land. And there would be nothing wrong with that um, if, if presuming on the two islands, we were just pursuing the kind of things that were our passions and there were no structures creating that disparity. So that's the point. Disparities are not necessarily problematic uh, because they may just reflect people's preferences and free choices. Um, but you want to check disparities and make sure that they're not the product of domination, because if they are the product of domination, you want to interrupt that domination. And it has the connection to the basic thinking that equality and freedom are intertwined and, and codependent, so to speak. Yes, exactly. That's right. Um, and that was the other when you asked me that question, I didn't give you the second half of that answer. Oh, sorry. No, no. I mean, only because I was, I was talking so much. I didn't think I should. <laughs> but anyway, only be, so to say that. Uh, in addition to equality being the ground for freedom, because we need that equality participation to have the freedom to be co-creators in our public spheres, it is also the case that if we care about freedom for all, that's about ensuring that we are all free from domination. And in order to ensure that we are all free from domination, we need a standard of equality uh, in our relations with each other to use as a measure. And I think that point is very, very important for this age that we're in now. One thing that struck me was that you, you write that uh, you have the philosophical perspective of Hannah Arendt in your understanding of politics. And I understand you part of the way, but uh, we, uh, we were working with uh, writing a preface to the human condition uh, recently, and I was again struck by how difficult it is to understand what, she, what her concept of politics actually entails. You know, you, mm -hmm. when she writes about acting in concert, as the highest form of human action and the highest form of human fulfillment. It's very, very beautiful, but I'm not quite sure what it means in, in the real world. And then she has, you know, you probably know her book, Reflections on Little Rock, uh, or her, her, her essay, and she's very restrictive when it comes to interests shouldn't be part of acting in concert. We should be liberated from, yeah, from, from interests and, and instincts and and impulses. And I was curious, how far do you agree with the Hannah Arendt here? So that's interesting. You picked um, the one essay of Hannah Arendt that I have just taken, you know, vigorous um, issue with. I've written a lot about that essays on that reflection, the Little Rock essay, because um, I think she really misunderstood uh, the way in which social and political are fully entangled with each other. Um, and she imagine that you could uh, operate politically without um, registering how the social upholds the political. So I think that was a mistake um, on her part in that. Um, that said, um, I do think, here's an example though, there there was, I have come to see a kind of a piece of truth in her essay, in that essay, Reflections on Little Rock, which also answers the question about what she means by politics. So the thing that I think is a piece of truth is she was very concerned that in the context of the civil rights movement, as she saw the young people, the Little Rock Nine, who were integrating Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas, she saw them as being there because their parents had made them go. Um, and she thought it was wrong that adults should be trying to, to do their politics through children, right? So that helps us know what politics is. Politics is when we're trying to change the structure of our society. Um, we're trying to change the horizons of value and everything that follows from that. And we should coordinate amongst ourselves as adults to do that, not do it through children. Now, her fundamental mistake in that specific piece of analysis was that those 
young people were there against their parents' wishes. <laughs> they were, in fact, doing politics themselves. They had decided they wanted to change the structure of society, and they had coordinated in order to do it. So um, it's actually it's a beautiful example of politics, um, and I think it's a good way of, of explaining exactly what Arendt meant by that idea. You do also distinguish in an important way between interest and purpose, which is very important, actually, for, for understanding your, your book, I think. And uh, could you explain this distinction and then how we connect our purposes with those of others? Yeah, and no, I appreciate that. So uh, the concept of interest, I think, has been sort of reduced uh, by economics, other disciplines, right, to a pretty kind of narrow calculation of utility. And I am trying to juxtapose to that a concept of purpose, which is about a sort of full horizon of value in a human life. Um, what it will mean, what for any given person, for them, it, they will be able to say, I've lived, you know, what's a life well lived? What's the answer to that question? And the answer to that question will be organized around um, a set of values that that person holds dear and gives them a sense of purpose in the world. And so what I'm trying to argue is that it's that broader sense of purpose of Like I'm trying to make a life, I want my life to have a certain shape. That's what we really bring into the political sphere, not merely a question of my material interests. Of course, those matter. That's a part of the story, but not the whole of the story. So then um, for me, it's important that uh, we recognize that the success of our own purposes, our ability to live purposive lives, that depends on our opportunity to live in a healthy community. Um, and by healthy community, I mean one where people experience that freedom and equality um, they have freedom in their own private life. They have that chance to, to have agency and empowerment in society with others. Um, and so to have that, um, one actually has to have as a part of one's purpose, the well-being of one's community. And so you get uh, what I then call a form of equitable self-interest then when you're able to hook your own purposes up to others. Um, but the actual work of hooking our purposes up together, that I think we do through deliberation or through conversation. And that's, again, the very Arendtian concept. That's where the work of politics happens. Um, the idea being, I come into a conversation with you. Uh, we have a sort of vaguely shared idea that we want to go in a similar direction, but we disagree on a whole lot of particulars. And then through negotiations, we come to some fashion which we can actually work together, not with a perfectly overlapping view about what we're doing and why, but with enough overlap that we can actually coordinate. Um, so it's it's in that negotiation, that conversational process that purposes get hooked up together. And then here again, I want to ask you about conflict and, and unity, because it's I think there's a there's a wonderful phrase in your book when you say we need to call each other in not out and we need yeah. to call each other into the project of holding downness towards others in, in our hearts and i really share that uh, ambition because i think here's understanding that there are conflicts within society but also that we must address these conflicts together or to put it another way that democracy must also be about articulating conflict but not destroying the frames that allows us to articulate uh, these conflicts. And this seems to me a very difficult question today because you have on the one hand people like Trump or also left-wing populists that should say we see power and conflict everywhere. And then you have on the other hand, a privileged position that I really don't like with people saying, well, we should celebrate unity. And we they kind of pretend that, that if people knew their own self-interest, we wouldn't disagree on anything. I felt that your part there is 
addressing that. How do you see the problem of conflict versus unity today? Yeah, no, thank you so much. I think it's just such a deep and important problem. Um, so for me, democratic governance is precisely about having the tools needed to resolve conflicts in ways that can ensure the sustainability of that supermajority for democracy. So in other words, for me, unity is, to sort of break down a little bit, it's, it's that combination of processes that a supermajority across ideological supermajority can be committed to that function to be responsive you know, broadly to the whole range of society. Um, that's for me what unity is. It's not um, a kind of romantic, just sense of affinity. Um, it is exactly that fact that we get our purposes hooked up together through a set of processes. So, you know, what I would say is, I think our processes for doing that, our representative institutions, are honestly not up to the job under current conditions. The current conditions being technology and the impact of social media and the way in which that has permitted coordination for among people with extreme views. Um, it is the economy, um, which has become incredibly exploitative and extractive. Um, it is the fact that we have these sort of bureaucracies that have grown up over, in our case, you know, two and a half centuries um, with all kinds of accreted sort of sclerotic elements. Um, and we just really need to understand the basic principles of governance so that we can actually, as I, I you know, continuously say, renovate um, our processes of governance so they can actually function um, in current conditions. For those listeners who should be interested, there are in uh, what is it called our common purpose, I think, the, yeah. the publications that we showed here. There are 32 recommendations in the end, isn't that right? It's 31, but yes, very good. I'm impressed. <laughs> no, I really, I, I really like that. Thank you so much for taking your time and talking to us yet again. It's very generous of you. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for the great conversation. I, I enjoy it very much. So thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Det var min samtale med Daniel Allen, som altså er professor ved Harvard og forfatter til Justice by Means of Democracy. Hvis man går virkelig og har brug for at se lyset i mørket, hvis man går virkelig, virkelig har brug for at få bekræftet, at det at beskæftige sig med Sokrates og Rawls og Kant og Habermas og de store tanker, at det faktisk er vigtigt ind i samtiden, at der er en eller anden forbindelse mellem den nærmest fysiske oplevelse af en jord, der brænder, og nogle samfund, hvis retfærdighed svigtes, så er det altså rigtig, rigtig godt at læse hendes bøger. Man bliver simpelthen i godt humør af det. Min samtale med Daniel Allen var produceret og redigeret af vores fuldstændigt vidunderlige ven og hjælper, Mads Adam Vener. I næste uge skal vi tale med den afrikanske aktivist Stella Nianzi, som har genopfundet en form for aktivisme, som vi virkelig godt kunne blive inspireret af her i vores del af verden. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg, og jeg håber, I vil lytte med igen i næste uge. Tak for nu.